Okay, as you know, on Sunday nights we're studying the book of Revelation and we had that little bit of a break there, but we're back in the Revelation again and the letters to the churches. We have not yet finished the letter to the church at Thyatira and I hope, I had hoped we might even finish it in part three tonight, but we'll see, not really sure. There's so much really that we we cannot skip over here and... uh, Sometimes when I'm thinking about it earlier in the week, I'm thinking, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. And then as we approach the Lord's day and then get to the evening service, there's, uh, there's a lot here and we want to make sure we cover it in the best way. These are God's people in Thyatira and there was as, as well for them a letter given to the messenger that was, of course... under the inspiration of the Spirit, penned by the Apostle John on the island, and the letter was sent with the messenger to the church. Thyatira was no different, and there was a serious message for this church, you remember. These are God's people there, and and there is ministry taking place there, and even a, a group of folks that are more mature than others there, but nonetheless, a normal church, and yet at some point, they had lost their way and were challenged for it, and we named this church the church that winked at blatant sin. The church that winked at blatant sin. You remember in verse 18, the Son of God whose eyes are like a flame of fire and His feet are like burnished bronze says this. What we saw there was the Son looking for purity in His church, and He noted that there was blatant sin being winked at and tolerated. It was a strong congregation, verse 19 tells us. There was vibrant body life. I know your deeds, Jesus said, and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. There was progress in a commendable love for one another, a commendable faith in God to a large degree in some ways, and a commendable service to the Lord, and they were even in those things steadfast. They were persevering. But there was this deadly threat, as it would be to any church, where you get to the point where you begin to wink at sin in small, subtle ways behind the scenes, and then ultimately it becomes a gross uh, tolerance of some evil, a leaven that has leavened the whole lump, and ultimately then threatens the ministry itself and the Lord's blessing upon it. That's precisely what happened as we saw in verse 20. They had the deadly threat of ignoring blatant sin. Jesus said, I have this against you, just to sort of review here, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my slaves astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. You remember there was in this particular city a a series of very powerful um, business districts and guilds that were a part of that, and they were linked to religious... um, worship and religious rituals in the city, and the reason was is because there were, there were aspects of idolatry that guaranteed economics and the blessing of the gods if you participated in them, and these labor guilds, if you will, which ruled the businesses and ruled the communities, if you participated in it, there were festivals, annual festivals, and throughout the year, these festivals involved the worship of these false gods for the sake of your economic stability and those Those rituals involved sensuality, immorality, sexual sin. 
And if you didn't participate in such things, uh, you, of course, suffered for it greatly, both economically on the practical side and then even in families, no doubt, and friends as, as you made enemies. And, of course, the judgment was given by Jesus Christ. He says that she's a self-named prophetess. She is teaching error. She's leading the disciples of Christ into the worship of false gods. And then the same sin of the licentious Nicolaitans, which was libertinism, which was, hey, if, if there is some sort of religious value to this immorality, that gives us a reason to do it. And in a Gnostic fashion, uh, some people were jumping right in and believing that they could get away with such things There were both groups influencing the church, and the church was ignoring it. In fact, there were disciples under this particular woman, Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, and she was teaching and leading bond service astray, and she was responsible for it, and so Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, a remarkable statement. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of tribulation and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. She's the ringleader. They must repent as well as she or there will be problems. There will be tribulation. Even the death of one's own family and and heritage, verse 23, I'll kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And notice the end of verse 23, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Deeds reveal the heart. It is clear from this letter that you must remember that deeds reveal the heart. You're not saved by deeds, but when you're saved, your deeds either reveal the veracity of your profession of faith, or as James 2 says, it exposes a dead faith. Don't let anyone tell you they can profess Christ and not have a growing and increasing transformed life, as this letter indicates. Jesus says, I search out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you whatever you deserve based upon your works. Now, we saw last time that in 2 Corinthians 5, all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will be recompensed for our deeds in the body according to what we've done, either good or bad. Look, that is not to say that if you're in Christ, you will be condemned. What it does say is that in front of the bar of divine justice, your works should manifest where you stand in your heart, and they will. People have often asked, is there some movie that's going to play of my life? All your deeds will be in front of the Lord. And you won't really be bothered by other people being there because this is the Lord of glory who will test our deeds. If you brought an entourage with you before the bar of justice and hoped that somehow standing next to them would be moral support, think again. There's no moral support when you're standing before the king, the judge of the universe. All that will matter is whether you're forgiven and covered by His righteousness. And all that will matter is that when He tests your deeds, they are coming forth, some as gold, silver, and precious stones, some tested by the fire of His glory, 1 Corinthians 3, and it manifests that you are in Him. That's why we don't judge our brothers, Romans chapter 14, verse 10. We're not anybody's judge. We bring the Scriptures upon our life and their lives. An hour is coming, Jesus said in John 5 in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. They will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. What are the evil deeds here? Jezebel won't repent. Her disciples won't repent. There is false 
worship. There is idolatry and immorality. She will not repent. Those are the deeds that will be tested on that day. And the Lord will even judge in a practical way with earthly tribulation until they face eternity without Christ. We're warned, just as Paul warned the church at Rome in chapter 2 of Romans, that there is a stubbornness of heart in the unrepentant. The impenitent person is unrepentant, and they are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And it is the righteous judgment of God, the God who will render to every man according to his deeds. If you, by perseverance, do good and seek for glory and honor and immortality, you will receive eternal life. Why? Because it manifests in your heart of hearts that you you would repent of your sin. You do repent of your sin. You don't love your sin. You don't love to live in it. You're not stubbornly unrepentant in it. As a church, we're not stubbornly unrepentant of our weaknesses and our corruption. We want a spirit of humility and brokenness before the Lord as a church. We do not want to be those who proclaim loud, boastful things and do nothing about it. We don't want to be those who say, hey, we're a church, we'll give you Jesus, and then tolerate wickedness. It is a marvel today in evangelicalism how much boasting about giving people Jesus goes on, and then how much toleration of blatant wickedness that the Bible condemns, seemingly without a moment's reflection or pang of guilt in the conscience. This is precisely where the church at Thyatira was. They were winking at it. What is marvelous here, however, is that there was a group in Thyatira who were in a corner somewhere, standing strong. Notice verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching. Oh, it's like a breath of fresh air. In that church, with powerful Jezebel, with a network of people who wink at wickedness, with idolatry in festivals that the community then brings down on your head if you don't participate in, with the Nicolaitans and their libertinism and all that pressure, with excuse after excuse for worshiping false gods and committing immoral acts and saying that it's part of your religion, with excuse after excuse, temptation after temptation, how much pressure was on this beloved little group of people? Come on, you can do it. It's no big deal. You see us doing it. God is not judging us. The ministry's flourishing. We're all about service. We're all about faith. We're all about love. We're all about perseverance. Come on, you can do it. Don't. Do you really want to be over there by yourself? Do you really want to be on the outside? You know, you're only hurting the economics of the community. And you're really endangering us because the gods are watching. These festivals are important. This religious uh, eclecticism, this syncretism, this grouping together of all kinds of people from all walks of life. Look, they, they worship different gods. We all sort of find our way to the same God eventually, and you're, you're disrupting the karma of it. Come on. But I love it because the Lord recognizes that there are some in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching. And they've not known the deep things of Satan 
as they call them. You remember last time, the, the deep secrets of Satan. This is, this is a reference to the view that in order to appreciate fully the grace of God, you need to plumb the depths of evil. That was basically the Gnostic idea. The Gnostics sort of separated the flesh from the spirit, and they said, look, whatever you did in your spirit, that in and of itself was either good or evil, but whatever you did with your body, it was a dualism. It was separate. You, you could do whatever you wanted with the flesh. The flesh is already dying. The flesh returns to the dust. Do whatever you want with it. And so they would carry their bodies into immorality, and, and they would tell people that they're really plumbing the depths of of, the, of evil so that they could see the grace of God flourish in this dualism. They separated the things of the flesh from the things of the spirit, the body from the immaterial. And it boasted, it boasted that it was entering into the stronghold of Satan that believers could learn the limits of his power by emerging victorious. So here it is. You have this Gnostic idea in these guilds and festivals that you could rush headlong into immorality and false worship, plumbing the depths, getting really close to the gates of hell, and coming out unscathed. See see how, we're, how blessed by God we are? I mean, it was wicked, subtle. And I love it. He says... Those who are in the church who've not known those things, they've not plumbed the depths of them. He says, I place no other burden on you. What does he mean by that? Well, this section that we're going to discuss tonight, and if we can't finish, there, there's no reason why we can't take one more Sunday and just really work through the promises here. But let's call this section the rewards of holy endurance. The rewards of holy endurance. And what you see, first of all, here is a focused plan of attack. A focused plan of attack. In other words, between now and the time Christ comes, we are here. We are here and in certain seasons of life and culture, we will be in the belly of the beast. You know, when you go to some of these foreign cultures and it's godless it's, it's complete darkness in terms of animism and the worship of false gods or places like Italy that's just steeped in the false worship of Roman Catholicism or you go to India and it's steeped in Hinduism and, and all of these other false religions. When you see cultures like that, that's how we describe it. There are some who go to those cultures to name the name of Christ and begin a work of the gospel. They are in the heart of Satan's lair. They are in the belly of the beast. And there are times when we as a church, between now and glory, that will be our lot. More and more so even in our own culture. So we need a focused plan of attack. If we're going to reap the rewards of holy endurance, it begins with a focused plan of attack. Notice verse 24, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching and have not known these deep things of Satan as they call them, he says to them, I want to place no other burden on you. you say, what does that mean? As to the path that we're on as believers, it is clearly mapped out by the Lord. The Lord has, has a very focused plan to flee idolatry and sensuality. There it is. You want to boil it down? From here to glory, we are to flee from idolatry and flee from sensuality or immorality. The path is clearly marked. You want to know who's on that path? Find someone who worships the living and true God, loves the living and true God, wants to hear from the living and true God, stays away from all false worship, and hates immorality. 
people who name the name of Christ and have immorality, sexual sin going on in their life, winking at it, this is not the plan of attack. That is a person who is under the chastening of God, if not the judgment of God eventually. Because the guardrails are clearly marked. And the Lord said, look, I'm placing that burden on you in that church, huddled together in that mess. That's what I want you to do. I want you to avoid the festivals of idol worship, and I want you to avoid the immorality in the name of high spirituality. Avoid those things. I'm not placing any other burden on you. The dangers are clearly identified. The warning signs are posted at every turn. Here's your plan of attack. You stay faithful to fleeing idolatry, and immorality. That's the burden God places on these saints in this church. The precise burden of dependence and faith and humility and obedience that runs away from idolatry and runs away from immorality. You know, it's very clear in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 Because of the grace of God given to us, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Our plan of attack is simple. Stay away from sexual sin and stay away from false worship. You could fit all the other dynamics into those categories. Whatever you bow down to worship that isn't Christ, whatever takes precedence over Christ, Luke 14 says, whatever is a higher love than Christ, Luke 9 says, if you love father, mother, friend, brother, sister, even your own life more than me, you can't be my disciple, there it is, there's false worship, doesn't matter what form it takes, flee it, flee idolatry, and flee sensuality, flee immorality. Draw near to God, James 4, 8, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded. This is the will of God for you, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual sin. God protects us from all things that we're not ready to endure. How does He do it? From now till glory, He gives us a plan of attack, and it's very focused. Flee idolatry, flee immorality. What a great plan of attack. What a hemming in of God's people. It's very clear, straightforward. I'm not going to place any other burden on you. Here are the major categories of your life, he says to these saints huddled together in Thyatira. Under those exact burdens, stretch your faith. Be sustained by God's grace. You know, just on a practical level, this is how God does it. You know, I know that that we would like an easier path, but God knows exactly what we need, and so He puts pressure on us, just like He put these believers in a church, huddled together in a corner under, the, under really uh, the pressure and the persecution of that environment. The whole church is winking at sin. Here you've got a, a group of huddled believers, and they're saying, no, we will not. And God is using that to hem them in. I'm placing that burden on you and no other burden, because under that burden, you're going to grow in Christ. That's exactly what he does with us. I kept a lot of trials out of your life, but there are some things I want you to do that hem you in. Here's the burden I want you under. I want you under this trial. I want you under this scripture. I want you under this plan of attack. I want you heading this direction with this focus. God does that with his people in order to sanctify us. You're under an unreasonable boss at work. That is God's plan of attack for you. Stay faithful. Do not not wish for a different situation. Don't covet something that God doesn't have for you. 
You live around some troublesome neighbors, talk to them, but do not retaliate. You live under persecution, God uses persecution, as He does with these saints in Thyatira, to hem them in. He gives them this burden and nothing else. You, you flee immorality, you flee idolatry in that context. You say, why is that important? Well, just think about it. We tend to lose focus in the midst of these things. And it's always helpful when you're under the pressure of life to go back to first principles that become the staple of the Christian life. They are our bread and butter, if you will. If you want to know how to live the Christian life when everything seems like chaos and you can't remember the two sub-principles the pastor gave last Sunday and you have two more sermons you haven't listened to and you have all this stuff coming at you, just cut it all away and go back to first principles. No false worship, no immorality. I can live with that. I can live there. That levels the playing field. That's the burden on my life. I want to worship Christ in purity and I want to remain pure and holy in my moral life. That's a core principle. Flee idolatry. Flee sensuality. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Flee idolatry. Run from it. He just said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no test has overtaken you, but such is his common to man. And yet God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tested beyond your ability to handle it, and he'll provide the way to go through it and escape sin. Verse 14, flee from idolatry. Don't worship false gods. Don't covet a different God than the one you have. Don't covet an easier situation. Let life hem you in so that you flee idolatry and sensuality. I love that. And it's interesting just looking back at this letter and that comment, I place no other burden on you. It's interesting because that language is reflective of the early church in the first church council in Acts 15. You remember what happened? You had Jew and Gentile arguing and you had Jews saying you got to be circumcised and you had Gentiles saying, no, we don't have to be circumcised. And then Gentiles were flaunting the, the food that they could eat, which had blood still in it. And some of them came out of pagan worship where immorality was a part of these guilds and they had a council about it in Acts 15 and in that council, James the elder stood up, the pastor of the church, after they deliberated on the issue and they told the Jews and Gentiles what they wanted them to do. And you know what they said to the Gentiles? Look, because there are still people in the church who are Jewish and they still read Isaiah and still go to synagogue, we want you to be careful not to eat meat that has blood in it when you're around them. Be careful about that. Love would prevail. I know there's no big deal eating meat with blood in it. You don't have to worry about things being kosher. But while you have Jews who are still burdened about those things, love them enough not to eat meat with blood in it. And he says, and then I want you to abstain from idolatry and sexual sin. Isn't it interesting? And he said, I place no other, no greater burden on you. Similar language. In Acts 15, just similarly, you have then an issue of idolatry, an issue of the two coming together in the church, Jew and Gentile, and letting love prevail, and you even have the issue of fornication that came out of the Gentile practice of immorality and religion. And he says, similar thing, I place no greater burden on you than this. Here's what I want you to do, very focused plan of attack. You have that similar language now here from the Lord Jesus in the letter to Thyatira and to this small band of believers. Here's your focus plan of attack. Flee idolatry and sensuality. 
And then he says, notice, hold fast what you have, verse 25, until I come. Nevertheless, he says, hold fast what you have until I come. So we might say it this way, firmly possess it. Firmly possess this purity and persevere in it. Literally, seize it and strongly hold on to it. So it's just the backside of fleeing idolatry. Flee idolatry, and that means to entrust yourself exclusively to God and His Word. Possess the Word of God in your heart of hearts and trust yourself to it. And then to flee sensuality is to bring your passions under the control of the Spirit by humble faith. So here is a call to seize upon purity and upon God's Word and trust yourself to God rather than these false ideas and flee sensuality, bring your passions under control. And he says, do that every day, holding fast strongly until I come. So there's your plan of attack. That's the first reward of endurance is that God gives you a very clear plan of attack and He will protect you in that plan of attack, but you must hold fast. You must hold fast. Look, the Christian life is not passive. It's not the old Keswick idea of letting go and letting God. The Christian life is not effortless. The Christian life is not, hey, Jesus did everything at the cross. I don't have anything to do. No, there you have it. Hold it fast. Strongly seize it. Grab a hold of it. Flee idolatry and grab a hold of God and entrust yourself to Him. Flee sensuality. Bring your passions under the control of the Spirit by humble faith. And stand there. Hold there. Be patient there. You say, for how long? Until you see Christ. You say, wow, pastor. Doesn't he know how long that is? Of course. Of course he does. Notice what he says. Until I come. <laughs> and, and there's something in this that's so hope-filled. That is to say, you, you can hold it fast or he wouldn't command it. And he's obviously the supply because he knows when he's going to come. He knows how long it's going to take. So he wouldn't tell you to hold fast if he hasn't supplied exactly what you need every day until you get there. You can't look at this and say, he told me to hold fast, but I have no supply, or I don't have enough. You can't say, he told me to hold fast, but he's made a mistake on the timetable. This is one of the great rewards of endurance, is a right perspective about endurance. God gives you the task, the focused plan of attack. It's very simple, and as you have that, you are to believe God and Hold strongly what you have until he comes. We're not looking for tomorrow. We're not looking for next week unless he takes us home before it's time. We're looking to his return. That's how long you hold fast. It's a focused plan of attack. You say, well, is he going to sustain me? Notice, notice verse 26. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, there will be these rewards he outlines. So there's a focused plan of attack and a firm pledge of the power to get there. 
Here is the greatest, most hopeful news of all, that God has guaranteed that in Christ we will prevail. We will prevail in the face of any obstacle. We in Him will prevail in the face of any enemy. And in the face of and in the middle of any suffering for His namesake or any earthly terror, we are guaranteed a power to prevail. To Him who overcomes and He who keeps my deeds until the end, we are to overcome, beloved. And we are to keep striving precisely because at the cross, Christ was in his own striving against sin for us, and he prevailed. Hebrews chapter 12 says, have you forgotten? Well, literally, it says, as it quotes the Old Testament, you have forgotten. You have forgotten that you are not to consider the discipline of the Lord, this pressure on us, this steadfastness and perseverance, this holding fast. You have forgotten that you've been given that, and you think it's of no value, but you should remember that whom the Lord loves, He what? Chastens, and He scourges everyone He's receiving. If you're a legitimate child of God, it is for discipline that you endure. You endure it. Why? Because you're a legitimate child of God. And so you have forgotten that you've not yet suffered unto blood and you're striving against sin. But the Lord did. He strived against sin on the cross, and He prevailed for us. And so you can overcome. We are to overcome. We're called to keep striving every day. Our ultimate perseverance until the end is His empowering work. We're guaranteed the power of it by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit cannot lose. And that striving is effected through our faith and humble effort. He's, that's why he includes the phrase, and he who keeps my deeds until the end. The deeds that he has done, the deeds he's commanded. The things that he has blazed the trail in, and the things he's commanded us to follow him in, as an example for us. Look at Romans 8 for a moment. You must understand this wonderful grace given to us by the power of God, and you know the text real well. We don't have to belabor it, but in Romans 8... Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And you have not received this spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. How does he testify with our spirit? Internally, he calls us to himself to have that intimate fellowship with Him, that is a supernatural work where even when you're in a season of struggle and pressure and perseverance, even when the saints in Thyatira were huddled in a corner, losing their economics, losing their friends, even in that moment, they were called to the Father by the Spirit of God, Lord, help us. Lord, we want to be faithful to You. And they were faithful. But not only that, if you back up in Romans 8, he says that we're not as believers under the obligation to the flesh. Verse 13, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. That is to say, the power of sin must die in you if you live by the flesh. You're not a believer. But if you live by the Spirit, 
and you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. There it is. That's how the Spirit testifies, because you are able to overcome. You are able in your striving to make it another step, to see another moment of faith, to know the grace of God that sustains you when you didn't think he could or would. There it is. You're being led. We have the power to overcome and to kill sin. It is the Spirit leading us in a promised victory because he has pledged his power. That's why we know we can live because the Spirit who is supplying the power over sin is the same Spirit who made us God's children. I love that. To him who overcomes, to him who keeps my deeds until the end. That's me. I think about that. That's me. I'm a legitimate child. How do I know? Because an illegitimate child, Hebrews 12 says, has no chastening and no pressure and no persecution that they know is from God and has hemmed them in. Oh no, the unbeliever might feel the consequences and weight of bad circumstances, but that's all they care about. They're not being called back to an intimate relationship with the Father, and they have no power over sin. They're not a legitimate child, therefore they don't have the discipline of a father who wants us to share in his holiness. But I do, you do if you're in Christ, and so it is for that great parental discipline that we endure. We patiently press on every day. Did you know that every conversation you have, every relationship you have is another encouragement to press on? Isn't that true? I mean, if you've been in the church any length of time, eventually every conversation we have, someone is saying to someone else, press on, keep on. The Lord is coming. His arrival will be soon. Trust the Lord. Work in His power. Depend upon Him. Press on. Keep striving. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. From the letters in the New Testament to today, even on the Lord's Day, it seems that this is the constant conversation of the Christians in their mutual encouragement of one another. Press on. Remain. Keep going. You never hear a Christian say, all right, you've reached the end. That's enough. Give up. That never happens. You hear that from someone who is, has lost their faith in God, curse God and die. But you don't hear that from those who understand that we're called to overcome. There is a plan of attack and there's a promised pledge of power. Just as believers are not passive, so God is not passive. He's proactively working to make us holy. We are His workmanship. Look, it doesn't matter the season of persecution. It doesn't matter how many people over here are tolerating sin and I'm huddled in a corner. It doesn't matter how much economic pressure comes. It doesn't matter how much we're made to stand alone and feel isolated. God has made us His workmanship. And I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works which He prepared beforehand that I should and would walk in them. That's why I love what the psalmist writes over and over again, and particularly in Psalm 37, verse 24, though he fall, that is to say, though the believer falls down, he will not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Man, I know the hand of the Lord. 
in the most desperate moments, I know the hand of the Lord. I know what it means to be lifted up in my heart of hearts. I know what it means to find an anchor for my soul in His Word. I know what it means that through my tears, after sobbing and all my energies drained, and I'm done and spent and I have no more mental thought to put together with another one, I know in that moment there is this rest that washes over the Christian as truth floods the mind. This is the Spirit of God causing you to overcome in your weakest moment. Christians know that. And suddenly, new vitality fills your lungs. This is what the psalmist prayed for in Psalm 119, 75. May your compassion come to me that I may have new vitality from your word. Fresh vitality. Prophet Jeremiah established the sole reason why true believers never fall away. Namely, that God has put the fear of himself in their hearts so that they will not depart from him. Psalm 30, Jeremiah 32, verse 40. And, and arguably one of the clearest statements in the New Testament on the certainty of this overcoming is in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. In 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is, listen to this, imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's imperishable in that it cannot be destroyed. It's undefiled in that it cannot be corrupted. It's unfading in that it cannot lose its strength over time. And it's kept in heaven for us in that it cannot be robbed or stolen away from us because it's kept by God's power. We're being guarded through faith for a salvation on the verge of being revealed in the last time. Listen, it doesn't matter from an earthly perspective whether we have 70, 80, 100 years to go from here till we meet Jesus or another 2,000 years before the church meets her Lord in glory. It doesn't matter. You've been pledged a power. You can overcome, even if huddled in isolation, persecuted, stormed against, ridiculed, slandered, your head's lopped off, your friends beaten in front of you. It doesn't matter. This is an impregnable fortress of the power of Almighty God guarding our inheritance. You can overcome and keep His deeds until the end. It's His power that does it. I love that. Same truth is taught by Paul in Romans 5, 8 to 10, using an argument from the greater to the lesser, you know it well, for if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, then how much more, having now been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You will overcome. And then, of course, that great text in Romans 8, which is like climbing the Everest of, of spiritual texts outside of John 17, and it just says we overwhelmingly what? Conquer. We don't just barely make it. We might have a little more wood, hay, and stubble than gold, silver, and precious stones that we should have had and could have had, but we don't just barely make it. We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Overwhelmingly. 
Because God's impenetrable love for his elect cannot be stopped. If God is for us, who is against us? 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We're called into fellowship with God's Son, and we will be confirmed unto the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I will be confirmed blameless. It is coming. And the Lord Jesus, in his intercessory work, Hebrews 7.25, is able to save forever those who come to God through him, because he ever lives for the purpose of interceding. Who's going to take on Christ? Who's going to take on the Father, who's the only one who, who brings a charge against the elect? And if God doesn't bring a charge against the elect, then no one can. Who's going to come against us who, for whom the Spirit intercedes? Romans 8. And so the Thyatiran believers are spoken to here by the Lord Jesus. And he says, look, I have a plan of attack. It's very simple. I want you to stay away from idolatry, worship me and me only, and I want you to stay away from sexual immorality, religious or otherwise, I want you to stay pure. And I'm not going to place any other burden on you, but what you do have in that burden, hold it fast until I come. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds to the end, there is great reward coming. Why do they need to hold fast? Because look, if they don't, if they do not hold fast, they will prove to be no different than those in Thyatira who were now at this point winking at sin and under the warning of Jesus Christ to repent. They will be no different than those who never were truly Christ's. They will prove they never were in Christ. Beloved, we're called to persevere to the end because true Christians, being given the power of God, never defect and apostatize. Never. We have weak moments, fear of man, moments like Peter, where we won't stand firm for Christ in a public setting, but we go later and bitterly weep over such things because we're drawn by the Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father, I want to be restored to you, I'm grieved. But we're not like those in 1 John 2, 19, who go out from us because they're not really of us. There are people in the church like that. Sometimes you see somebody leave the body of Christ and you don't know where they're at. We can't judge the heart. We, we bring the Word of God to bear. Sometimes we see the clarity of it. Sometimes we don't. We don't know if they're apostates, but there are some, like Demas of old, who loved this present world and desert the work Paul mentions that in 2 Timothy 4. They don't remain with us. That's why we're to overcome, because you don't want to be in the category of those who have to wonder, am I, am I leaving God's people because I was never really one of God's people? They don't remain with us, John says. They went out in order that it might be shown, that it might be obvious that they all are not of us. They might profess it, but they're not all true disciples. Perseverance proves you're a true disciple. It doesn't prove you're working your way to heaven and finally make it. We don't work our way to heaven. It proves that you have the Spirit and are being conformed to the image of Christ so that when you meet Him, your deeds are judged as real, as the deeds of Christ. That's why you persevere. You don't get up every day and say, boy, you know, I hope this day is, is filled with moments of obedience. No. You get up every day and say, Lord, give me strength and grace. I know I can obey you in the power of the Spirit, and I press forward. I forget what lies behind. Yesterday, 
had a bunch of trouble. Today has a bunch of trouble. I don't worry about tomorrow. It's got enough trouble of its own. But today, today I can overcome. And I'm not going to complain and whine all day long that I have to persevere because it's in perseverance itself that you're proven to be an overcomer in the power of God. You prove the roots. Mark 4, the gospel of Mark 7, 17 and 18, they have no root in themselves. They endure for a little while. Others are the ones sown among the thorns. There are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the delight in riches and the desire for other things, they enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. We know that. Or how about 1 Corinthians 15, 58? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, and I love this, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always. There's never a time where our labor is in vain as true Christians. And so we're called to always abound in it. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we'll reap if we do not lose heart. In due season. Hebrews 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay the closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 3, take care, brethren, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day. Have you thought about that? Exhort each other every day, as long as it is still called today. Man, still there's light out. Exhort one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And he says in that text, if only we hold first our confidence firm to the end. Wow. Hold your confidence firm to the end. And we don't throw away confidence, Hebrews 10, 35, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that you may do the will of God and receive what is promised. I love to see a senior saint who's just pressed on, pressed on, pressed on, pressed on. We marvel at it. They're tireless. They just go and go and go, and then God takes them home. I love that. What a picture for the church. The Lord takes them home. I need that example. I need that. A great cloud of witnesses who've laid aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles. A great cloud of witnesses who've run with perseverance the race set before them, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We need a cloud of witnesses like that. Lift your drooping hands, one translation says of Hebrews 12. I like it. Your hands are starting to droop. Lift them up. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. Get back after it. Take a deep breath. Drink in the divine water of Christ. Quench your thirst and press forward. I love that. Paul said, I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Acts 20, 24. If only I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. You have a course. I have a course. And we're to remember our course and stay in it because the Lord promised we can overcome. And you know what's interesting about that? Jesus makes it about as plain as it can be in Matthew 24 when he says that in the end times, wickedness will multiply and men's love will grow cold. 
And the only thing that's going to shoot through the middle of an environment where love for God, love for one another, and, and is running cold, and hatred is on the rise, and evil is prevailing in the culture, the only thing that's going to shoot up through the middle, he says, are those who endure to the end, and only they will be saved. Wow. Make no mistake that though you will be preserved as a true believer, the way you're going to be preserved is that you will endure to the end because if you don't endure to the end loving Christ, you are not a Christian. That is stark language from the Lord Himself. Furthermore, verse 13 of Matthew 24 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. There it is. This same gospel of endurance, this same gospel preached by those who do endure, it will shoot up through the middle of all that lack of love, all that hatred for God, all that wickedness and idolatry and immorality, and up through the middle will be a huddled group of people standing together, still on the earth, still proclaiming that gospel, who endure to the end because they are saved and are being saved and will be saved. They will reach it all the way. So here they are huddled together and he says, he who overcomes till the end. What? What is the reward? Well, we will unpack it next time, but look at this, verse 26. To him I will give authority over the nations, and ye shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. I'll give him authority over the nations, rule them with a rod of iron. You have language here that is very, very specific. You have language from the Old Testament, from Psalm 2, verse 8, language that repeats itself throughout the book of Revelation. You have language here from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 14. Prophetic language. So not only is this a pledge of power, a power that's going to prevail, but there's power to reign with Jesus Christ. I will give him authority over the nations. This speaks of the millennial reign of Christ. If you endure till the coming of Christ, if you're enduring until you meet Christ, and if you're on the earth when He comes, and He comes in all of His glory, both those who have died in Christ and those who are here when He touches the earth to set up His kingdom, we will enter the millennial kingdom and we will have the joy and privilege of reigning with Him over the glory of His earthly kingdom as He demonstrates the power of God in all of the promises given to Israel, as He demonstrates the power of God in restoring all things on the earth and ruling from the throne of David in His earthly kingdom, and we will reign with Christ over the glory that the nations bring into that day. Over the whole globe. The whole globe. Man, you get on an airplane today and you fly to some place remote or you fly over some troubled nation and you wonder if your plane's going to get shot down. You land some, in some foreign country, you slap your passport to, in front of the guard there and they let you in and then you're in a foreign land. You don't know where you are. It's a dangerous place. You don't know if you're coming home sometimes because you're not sure if you can get out of there. You're not a citizen. You can fly all over this globe and see places 
that are way unfamiliar to our culture we live in here, and you are not on safe ground anywhere you go in the ultimate sense. You don't know what's going to happen ultimately. On that day, when Christ comes, righteousness will prevail over the earth because he will rule with a rod of iron because his father gave him authority to do so. He will sit on the throne of his father, David. The topography will be changed. The earth will split as he touches down on the Mount of Olives, as he walks through the Golden Gate up into the Temple Mount and sets up his kingdom, and we will reign with him and have the authority over the nations which bring their glory into the millennial kingdom if you overcome. That authority over the nations, that great reign, that great power that is given to us miraculously and marvelously, and by the way, undeservedly, that power to reign is described by the prophets, particularly Isaiah 24 and Zechariah 14 and Daniel 12, and even by Jesus in his Olivet Discourses as he preached. The saints are going to judge the world, 1 Corinthians 6.2. We will judge angels, 1 Corinthians 6.3. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. We are a privileged part of that if we overcome. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Same language. I love that. If you persevere, if you overcome... The gift is that you will be with your Lord, perfected in holiness, reigning with Him over a globe that is filled with righteousness. You can go anywhere on it and fully and freely reign in perfected holiness. And whatever the Lord's doing to bring the nations into it, I mean, Zechariah 14 is profound stuff. There are some nations in that thousand-year period who still have people who have have babies and those children grow up and they they feign worship. They say they love Christ who's sitting on the throne, but they don't, the scriptures say. And Zechariah 14 says the Lord will judge those nations as he chooses just to hem them in and still be gracious to them, but judge them for their reticence. And we who overcome in this life will be reigning with him over even those circumstances. Remarkable. Absolutely stunning. We'll talk about the millennial kingdom at that point. It's interesting, he says, rule them with a rod of iron. It's an interesting, interesting word that's disputed by the way it is done in the Old Testament texts. And it's interesting, it, it probably has reference to judgment, but also has reference to leading. And, and some texts even suggest it has reference to shepherding, and that's why the Greek word appears here for that kind of dynamic. He will shepherd them, hem them in, rule them, and even judge and chasten them. And he says, I'm going to give you authority with me over the nations if you overcome in this life. So does it really matter what, what other people are doing and forcing us into some corner? He says to these beloved little believers, this pocket of the faithful in Thyatira. I'm not placing any other burden on you. Stay away from false worship. Stay away from immorality. And as you overcome, as you hold fast to purity and holiness and worship only me in your faith, I'm going to provide the strength to overcome. You keep my deeds until the end. You go all the way. You keep striving. And I will give you authority. 
And while the church of Thyatira was judged and never to be found again, I like to think that when we get to heaven, we'll meet that pocket of believers. Spend time talking to them about what it was like. And they will say the same thing to us. What was it like to overcome in your season? We'll talk about the rest of that promise, being given the morning star, etc., and then authority over the nations next time. Let's bow together. Lord, it's important that we just be inundated with Scripture on this great plan, this great promise, this pledge you've given to us. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We will get there. But Lord, we are prone to complain. We are prone to lose heart. We're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We're prone to doubt you. We're prone to weakness. We're prone to fear. We're prone to believe that the burdens you've placed on us are misplaced. We're prone to imagine that it's better to get along with the culture and not be troubled, to have a religious expression that is soft and palatable. We're prone to imagine that victory is impossible and that holding fast is not within our grasp because life hits us every day and trouble comes our way, sometimes in entire seasons. We're prone to not straighten the knees that are weak and and to not fix our eyes on you. We're prone to weakness. That's just the fact. So thank you for this letter you gave to these believers huddled together in this church who do not hold to licentiousness and do not hold to the idolatry and the rituals that took place in the day. They were willing to stand alone with great conviction. And you gave them a plan of attack that was very singular, just like you've given to us in your word, very singular, to walk as you walk, to keep your deeds until the end to know that we can overcome and to know that when we do not overcome and when we're weak, it's a lack of faith. It's idolatry in our hearts. It's lust and immorality and uncontrolled passions. Thank you for the promise that we're going to rule with you and reign with you. This is shocking to us for we have no right to, to do such. But the promise is that as you strengthen us to overcome, we are to keep ourselves in the faith until the end so that the deeds of our life will be manifested as having been wrought in you by your power. You will get the glory and you will be on display and you will be magnified. And when we reign with you, your glory will fill the earth and we will be at your side and at your service perfected in holiness and all of these troubles will make clear and plain sense for it will be sight and no longer by faith. Lord, help us to overcome now, to help each other overcome, to constantly remind each other. Tomorrow's another day. We press on. Encourage us in these things for the sake of your honor 
For it's in your name we ask it. Amen.